Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Piliucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Gilliff. Julia, what's our topic today? Massimo, for this episode, we're going to be looking at the extent to which values influence science. That's pretty broad, so let me break that down into two topics for us. First, we're going to discuss how scientists' own values affect the way they practice science, whether those values come from their culture, their race, their gender, their worldview, or, or anything else. And, and then we're also going to talk about the value judgments involved in deciding, as a society, what science is actually worth doing. Mm. Yes, so, at the very least. I think I have another two or three to throw in there. So, <laughs> so where are we going to start? Well, so to, to start with the first question of scientists' own values affecting the practice of science, um, a lot of the comment discussion on the podcast teaser revolved around the question of whether a more diverse body of scientists, uh, diverse in terms of, say, race and gender, I think was those were the terms we were discussing, right. would be likely to reduce biases. Um, so, right. I, and I believe you were arguing that it would. I would think that be the accurate? evidence is very definitely So, uh, let's talk about case. some of that evidence. Um, so, a lot of uh, historians, sociologists, and um, philosophers of science have put together over the last two or three decades um, evidence that that is, that is definitely the case. Now, let, let's make sure, uh, first of all, about what we are not going to talk about. Uh, I am certainly not going to be defending what is sometimes referred to as these, this strong social, this strong program in the sociology of science. Mm -hmm. This was based, uh, still is probably, at the uh, in Edinburgh. Uh, these are group, uh, these are people who are sociologists who are heavily influenced by uh, extreme postmodernist positions, and they literally maintain that essentially everything about science is socially constructed, and it's all about a matter of power relations and, and, and ideologies. Quite obviously. I don't subscribe to anything like that. And in fact, the majority of historians and, and philosophers of science, at least the ones that I know, certainly don't subscribe to that kind of a position. However, the problem is that too often um, uh, we have a tendency to sort of throw the, the, the postmodernist baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. <clears throat> I mean, after all, the postmodernist at a core, or the sociologists of science, even the strong program in the sociology of science, at a core, they do have an important point, which is let's not forget that science is a human activity. And as such, it's, it's going to be affected by all the foibles that, have, that affect every human activity. Uh, you know, scientists, just like everybody else, care about the same kind of things uh, as individuals. They, care, they want fame, sex, and glory, not necessarily, you know, and money, not necessarily in that order. Um, and therefore, they will do a certain number of things to achieve those, those things. Uh, you know, fame is a, is a value in science, um, which is achieved if you can do certain things that are also in turn valued by scientists, for instance, novelty. Uh, you know, novel discovery or novel piece of research is more important than just repeating, even repeating very well uh, mm. something or confirming very well something that somebody else has found. But, but to go back to your original uh, question, the, the, the idea here is that um, there are several uh, instances in the history of science where it's clear that there was a, 
uh, bias, either a gender bias or an ethnic, ethnic bias. And this was corrected only at great pain with a lot of, uh, of, of effort and usually only after the, um, uh, some other group has entered the fray. The mm-hmm. typical example is a lot of the research on, on uh, the differences, the gender, gender-based differences in intelligence at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. There were, there were decades um, during which scientists were absolutely convinced that women were less smart than men, and they had the data to prove it. That what they, was their data? Well, the data had to deal with filling skulls of dead people with little uh, balls of lead so that you could measure the cranial capacity of these individuals, right? And, and it was accepted knowledge, for, literally for decades, that all of this research was unquestionably showing that women's brain are smaller than men's brain. And since we all know, at least that's, that was the idea at the time, we all know that small brains are associated with less intelligence, then obviously women what? are less intelligent. Yes, that's exactly. terrible science. It is absolutely terrible science, but that was the science of the time. Now, what did it take to correct that? Uh, interestingly, the first correction started coming out when a few women, in, in origin, originally literally two women, got into the field and started redoing the experiments, started redoing the measurements. Well, but it sounds like the measurements weren't the issue. It was the assumption that brain size was a predictor of intelligence. Ah, no? That's one of the issues. Yes, oh. certainly. Uh, hmm. But the other issue is, in fact, that the measurements themselves were wrong. Because really? there is such a, Yes, because if you actually know that you're <laughs> so holding their, a, a Their fem- failure was overdetermined. <laughs> exactly. I'm their sorry, failure was overdetermined. That's a good way to put it. Thank you. Um, so the, the, the idea is, um, and this has been uh, observed in a variety of other contexts, that, uh, which is why, for instance, we have double blind, the, 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 the uh, golden standard in scientific research is a double blind experiment, mm-hmm. right? Because if you know what you're measuring, that may be uh, unconscious biases coming in. And sure enough, mm-hmm. this was definitely the case in, in, on, on their, um, in the situation that I'm talking about. So these women repeated the experiments and showed several interesting things. First of all, that if you actually repeat the measurements, it turns out that the, the uh, measurement error is larger than the average difference between a man and woman's brain size measured <laughs> with, those, with those instruments, right? So right there, that questions the fact itself. Um, because it turns out that the measurement error was much larger than people thought. Second, of course, they found a lot of women's skulls that were significantly larger than some of the skulls of the scientists themselves who were involved in that research, which clearly didn't fit the model, Um, which, of course, makes the the distinction that it's one thing to show average differences and it's another thing to to look at the variance and the distribution in the population of those those things. And on top of that, of course, as you pointed out, uh, other, other researchers at some point started noticing that, yes, but wait a minute, there is a correlation between body size and brain size, for instance, uh, so that if you correct for body size, as, as it turns out, uh, women's brain size is not, that, is not different at all from the one, one of men. And then, of course, it, there's the additional point that, in fact, there's no particular reason to believe that sheer size of the brain is uh, a direct, uh, in, in any direct relationship with intelligence, whatever that in turn turns out to be. Now, similar uh, uh, cases also between the, the end of the 19th century and into the uh, way into the early part of the 20th century uh, had to do with ethnic differences. So immediately after Darwin's uh, theory of evolution was accepted, the, the standard model was of a progressive model of evolution where you, know, you get from, from the amoeba all the way up to man. And of course, at the top of the pyramid uh, was going to be the white Anglo-Saxon man. Hmm. And below it, of course, uh, was the, you know, what at the time was called the Negro man, mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. So 
And of course, that was just taken as a matter of scientific fact. I mean, nobody had any inkling that this was just a, a, an issue of, uh, of ideological bias until much later on, biology started becoming m more varied in terms of, you know, sort of representation, cultural representation, and biologists started going back to, to, to uh, revisit those issues. And now we know better. Now, I hear the, the typical objection to these kinds of, uh, this kind of evidence is, well, but that was then, now is now, right? But we have to remember that then they also thought that they got it absolutely right, and then that was the end of the story. So there is this, this um, problem with these kinds of debates that when one, the only kind of evidence that one can bring on uh, to bear to the discussion, of course, is historical evidence. Because hmm. controversies that are going on right now, by definition, are not settled. So we don't know. We can't determine how much bias necessarily is, going, is affecting currently ongoing controversies. In some cases, you can make a reasonable argument. But, but most of the data actually come from historical record. And there is an, a tendency from people who want to defend so these um, idolized objectivity of science to say, well, but that was really bad science, and now we know better. We have to remember that, that is a, that's, a, that's a psychological trap in and of itself. This is sort of assuming that the science that we got now is really the good stuff and everything else before was bad because it was done you know, in a primitive sense or in a primitive way. Well, there's no reason to think that. Well, isn't it reasonable to think that we are getting better over time yes. at figuring out what traps we tend to fall into? And Correct. So that means, of course, that no, no um, uh, serious biologist today would argue that women are less intelligent than men based on putting a bunch of, of lead balls in their, <laughs> in their craniums, right? But as we heard recently from one of our guests, Cordelia Fine, they do mm -hmm. argue the same kind of thing based now on noodle scans and, uh, and more sophisticated um, you know, machineries and, and, and particular approaches. Mm -hmm. The point, Although, of course, is what if, you know, 20 years down the road, it, somebody comes up and does a similar study showing that, you know what, this was actually all, all the result of biases. It turns out that the data were not accurate. It turns out that they were overinterpreted and so on and so forth. And we can't know that now, although, of course, uh, uh, Dr. Fine actually argued that there is pretty good evidence even now that those studies are biased. But it's the same idea, right? It's the, the, the ch absolutely, the science gets better. I mean, there's, there's no argument, certainly not on my part. Uh, that the science gets better. But the biases are always there. And so if there is a, a, a persistent bias, and typically gender biases and ethnic biases tend to be persistent hmm. over long periods of time, unfortunately. And so there's always new ways to reintroduce them. So I'm, I guess I'm wondering how general this problem of racial and gender biases is. So, I mean, I, I, I don't have much trouble believing that a scientist's race or gender might bias his or her research that directly... Uh, impacts race or gender issues, but is it going to bias other kinds of research? Like, do we have any reason to suspect that scientists of one race or gender would reach different conclusions systematically about physics or chemistry or uh, cosmology? No, no, I don't. I don't think so. Um, uh, the, the biases tend to be specific to particular topic, but mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that other choices are also value free, right? So the idea is, for instance. Um, let's take uh, this, this famous discussion that um, you may remember was going on a number of years ago about in the United States about building the Large Hadron Collider, mm -hmm. which eventually got ne never got built. Um, we, we actually got to the point of digging this really, really large and very costly hole in the middle of Texas. Oh, the, uh, the, the superconducting yeah, the super, super collider. I'm sorry, right, the superconducting yeah. super collider. That's right. The Large Hadron is actually done in Europe. Yeah. 
But the the superconducting super collider. Now I still remember very clearly the um, the hearings in in, uh, in the Senate um, where Steven Weinberg, Nobel physicist, mm-hmm. was arguing against I forgot who the senator in, in charge of the hearings was, and it was this really interesting discussion about essentially values, because nobody was arguing that the science was going to be bad mm-hmm. or that you know that, that this this was somehow an unsound scientific idea. The idea was a matter of values, in particular societal values conflicting. Uh, with scientific values, right? So the senator point was, well, why should we spend X number of billions of dollars to satisfy the curiosity of a small number of physicists, frankly, mm-hmm. about you know uh, pretty arcane matters that are probably not going to matter to the rest of society? Now, this the exchange became interesting um, because you know Steven Weinberg is a very fine um, scientist and in a, in a very good uh, has a very good sense of humor. So the senator at some point asked. Uh, you know, Professor Weinberg, you know, my problem is that the last time I checked, uh, you know, my constituents don't eat quarks. And, of course, Weinberg uh, made the remark that probably, arguably, in part, cost him the earrings, but he said he couldn't help himself, probably. And he said, well, actually, Senator, by my reckoning, you're, you had, you know, a few billion quarks for breakfast this morning. Uh, Which, politicians don't appreciate science no, humor. exactly. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, probably was the, the wrong move uh, to, to make from, uh, in, in that context. But the point is, it is a serious question, right? So at the time, as a scientist, even though I'm not a physicist, but as a scientist, I was clearly uh, uh, baffled by the, the idea that a senator who probably knows nothing about science sort of uh, was there questioning the choices of a, a um, group of people who actually knew exactly what, was, what, what, what were they were doing and why they were doing it. But in fact, if you sort of zoom out mm-hmm. to the level of society at large, there is a good question. Well, why should we be spending billions of dollars for that project as opposed to, I don't know, Healthcare, uh, or you know anything else that has a more direct impact with with people. I'm not saying that we should do that. I'm saying it's a relevant question, and it sure. isn't the kind of question that scientists could say, "Well, it's the pursuit of knowledge uh, is it's intrinsically interesting and it's it's worth whatever it's worth." Well, that's a value. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. So, so this is getting us already into our second topic of the value judgments about what science is worth doing, sort of collectively. Right. Which, which I'm is sure great. We can, we'll we'll go back and forth on this. Sure, but, sure. Yeah. yeah. No, I just I wanted to say one other thing about the individual scientists' biases affecting the practice of science, uh, because we had talked about racial and gender biases, but I just wanted, for clarity's sake, to note that those aren't. There are plenty of other kinds of bias that aren't racial or or gender based. So, right. everyone to some degree has experiences some kind of bias in favor of confirming a theory that, for example, they've publicly endorsed and that therefore they have some sort of personal reputation stake in. Um, Then there's also the bias to find whatever the people who are funding you want you to find, which might, uh, as I I believe we discussed in our our live Q&A podcast episode, uh, which might go part of the way towards explaining why medical researchers being funded by pharmaceuticals are more likely to find that the drug they're testing is in fact effective. Um, And then... And then there are also biases stemming from more uh, intangible or uh, less less classifiable just worldviews that affect which theories you think are, are intuitively more plausible or worth investigating. And I, I found a neat example of this. So the astronomer Kepler, 
was convinced that the universe was organized in a harmonious and elegant way. And this was partly a result of his religious beliefs, that he felt that this is the kind right. of universe that, that God would create. So he spent years trying to confirm his theory that the orbits of the known planets in the solar system would each fit into one of the five perfect solids. Uh, <laughs> so those are the three-dimensional figures that have identical faces like the cube and the tetrahedron and so on. Right. And he, just, he tried in vain for years to make his astronomical observations fit with this theory. And the reason he stuck with it so long and so determinedly is that just because he had this deep-seated bias in favor of a harmonious, geometrically organized universe. Right. Actually, there is a second story of, about Kepler uh, that also deals with biases and also of a metaphysical uh, nature. Ooh. So Kip, Kepler is the guy, of course, that figured out what was wrong with the Copernican system, right? So Copernicus right. made the mistake, so, so if you want to put it that way, that once he, did, he realized correctly that it's not the Earth but the Sun that is at the center, more or less, of the solar system, yeah, well, we're stuck with the original idea of uh, circular orbits mm -hmm. of the planets, right? Um, and uh, it took many, many years to Kepler uh, to finally figure out uh, that the orbits of the planets were actually elliptical. And the reason for that is because he had a strong metaphysical bias in favor of perfect geometrical figures, as mm -hmm. you just pointed out. And, of course, circles are perfect geometrical figures, ellipses, by whatever the measure of perfection you want to apply to those kinds of things, are not perfect. And so he just couldn't believe that the planetary orbits could be anything other than circular. And it literally took him decades to figure out uh, how that was working. Now, eventually, he, did, he had the breakthrough, and, and then that's why... Uh, uh, we, we, we have Kaplanian laws that eventually uh, led the way to, to the work of Galileo and Newton. Uh, but so the biases are, are everywhere. And uh, most of them are unconscious. You know, the, the very few people are actually, very few, few sociologists of science or, science or philosophers of science are actually accusing scientists of be, doing things on purpose. Although, of course, there is the issue of fraud. Sure, yeah, and that um, happens, yeah. And that happens. Um, but that's a different, I think that's a different issue, which is much easier to understand. Although, um, there too, scientists, when confronted with, those, with issues of fraud, um, uh, as in the case, for instance, of the infamous paper allegedly connecting vaccines with autism, which was in fact retracted finally uh, years later. Um, because the author, the, the principal author, in fact, committed fraud, mm -hmm. uh, and which is causing countless issues um, as as we speak in terms of public health, because so many people are actually seriously thinking of withdrawing uh, vaccinations from uh, of their children. Now, uh, a lot of scientists that I talk to tend to think that fraud is a rare. Uh, very rare occurrence in science. As it turns out, there are numerous articles that have come out recently in, in, in recent years in both Nature and Science magazines, which are the, major, the leading uh, magazines that not only publish scientific research, but also commentaries about, about science itself, mm -hmm. uh, that allege that actually fraud is much more widespread, much more of a problem uh, than, uh, I don't have the, the actual figures in, in front of me at the moment, but much more than most scientists realize. And that there are reasons for that, which are, embedded, which are, which are very tightly linked to some of the intrinsic values of science. For instance, the value in, that there is in competition and again, getting uh, research grants, getting uh, certain positions and so on, you know, uh, beating people, uh, other, other people at, at, at the game, whatever the game it is that, that one is playing. All of those things are powerful incentives for fraud. And human beings being what they are, 
uh, just like in any other activity, we do find a significant number of scientists, um, especially now that science is a big business and it's done by thousands of laboratories across the world with very different national standards. Uh, for instance, for for the research to, that that is that is done, uh, the incidence of fraud is is allegedly going up significantly. So there is a problem there too. Yeah, I actually know someone who works in a science lab. I'm not even going to specify what kind of science, just to further anonymize the case. Mm-hmm. And so she's witnessed. She's she's pretty much certain that there's some amount of fraud going on uh, on the part of one of the researchers, and. The prob- I mean, so obviously there's the problem that, you know, she personally could be blacklisted as a troublemaker if she, right. you know, brings this to sort of the higher ups or public attention. But beyond that, there's this systemic, like structural problem that I realized when talking to her about, about this issue, that the interconnectedness of science, where you have so many people working on the same research paper and you have other research papers that are dependent on previous results from, from previous research papers. So if you, if you reveal fraud in uh, in one earlier research paper, you're not just taking down the person who committed the fraud, you're taking down the careers oh, of good. all the That's other right. people who right. worked with him or whose work was dependent on his work. Right. And so it just complicates the, the ethical calculus. And the same ethical calculus comes in um, at a sort of less dramatic, but unfortunately much more widespread um, level. So, so if we're not talking about actual outright fraud, uh, but let's say a little bit of massaging of of the scientific output. So, for instance, again, the, the, one of the major values in science, of course, is competition for grants and positions, which largely is, in fact, based on the number of publications you get out. Uh, of course, it's more complicated than just the number. It depends also on where you publish your work and how what is the perceived impact of the of, of your work and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. But believe me, I've been on plenty of hiring committees in, in several science departments. The sheer number of publication is, is an important, it's a very important, not, not necessarily overwhelming, but very important criterion, which means that there is a strong incentive to multiply artificially uh, the number of publications. So I've seen plenty of CVs where most of the publications are the so-called, represent so-called least publishable units. That is, people do break down their work in in tiny little chunks and they publish (laughs) as many chunks as possible, right? (laughs) Now, the result of that is, of course, an inflation of papers that overwhelm the scientific literatures uh, so so that, for instance, um, uh, research was done on the citations of uh, papers in, in biology a few years ago where it turned out that a full two-thirds of papers published in biological journals is never cited once. Wow. Right? And that's because it, there's an overwhelming, frankly, amount of garbage out there, and which is simply clogging the system. So uh, we, we have these people who keep publishing more and more and more because there is this internal value of not, you know, the publisher perish mm-hmm. ideal. Uh, and that has led over a very short period of time because if you actually look at, say, pre-World War II science, um, typically, when you published, uh, when you were a PhD student, and you finished your thesis. You published a book. Right. It wasn't you, know, you didn't. You were not publishing four, five, six, seven different papers. You were publishing a book. There was one publication in your mm-hmm. name. It was, you know, significant publication. It was you know a lot of details, a lot of stuff going in the, into that book, and that was your passport to an academic career. But after World War II, once that modern day big science started out, which essentially can be traced back to the Manhattan Project. Uh, that was the, the first big science project 
ever. And after World War II, after that one, after World War II, big science, especially in the United States, has been funded at a significant, you know, a significant degree by the public purse, which means that you have a flourishing, which is a positive thing, of universities and university positions and so on and so forth. But you also have these side effects, which are which threaten to overwhelm the system. The other th- thing that is threatening to overwhelm the system is the number of PhD students that we turn out. Mm-hmm. Right? Again, it's the same idea. The value that is embedded into the career of a university faculty is that the more offspring you have, the better. Right? Uh, for a variety of reasons. First of all, because you collaborate with your offspring, so that's more papers or more grants. Uh, you also have influence, more influence in the community. Um, a lot of scientific communities, even today, actually are still fairly small. Right. Uh, I mean, I was uh, I spent most of my career working in in, uh, uh, what biologists call gene environment interactions and the nature nurture issues. Mm -hmm. And I think I pretty much knew almost everybody that was working. Yeah, a few hundred people. It's not that much uh, that big of a field, certainly all the major players. So it's a it's a field that it's still uh, highly inbred, which means that the more offspring you produce, the more you sort of uh, are able to dominate the field. Now, what's the result of that? That we produce a lot of PhDs who are not going to find jobs or who are going to find suboptimal jobs. Now we have a, a situation where a lot of excellent PhDs are working for community colleges, for instance. Right. Um, as a, and, and or as the, lecturers. Or as a lecturers. Or, that's or right. Not on tenure tracks. That's yeah. on a non-tenure track, increasing, increasing number of adjuncts and lecturers and so on that are people essentially, frankly, exploited. They're paid very little. They have usually no benefits or very little in the way of benefits. They have no prospect of having a career. Uh, and yet they have a PhD on right. their CV and they have a fairly high number of uh, publications. So all of these things are value issues that don't enter into the actual doing of science, but that do affect what kind of science we do and how we do it and, and so on. Okay, so let, let's get back to the question of what scientific research is, is most worth pursuing. And we were talking about the case study of the superconducting super collider, which was canceled in 93. I believe the costs at that point was running up to it was over 10 billion definitely right. yes, so it was, it was definitely significant yeah. yeah and it was going to be several times more powerful than than the uh, large hadron collider so it would have been would have been i guess quite significant for for physics absolutely but yeah so i i think i mean the question of whether it's worthwhile to do research that doesn't have any immediately obvious practical benefits is a really valid one i i mean i so i personally my my personal value is is on knowledge for knowledge's sake, at least relative to many other things. Maybe not to things like saving lives, but to things like, I don't know, building sports stadiums or, or even <laughs> even yes. funding some of the arts. Um, but, but I do recognize that that's a personal value and that, that right. I, I enjoy knowledge for knowledge's sake, but I can't defend it as sort of the objectively right way to spend our money. Correct. And I think that's the right way to look at it. That is, you know, I, I tend to share that sort of, that sort of attitude. I mean, I, th- I do think that knowledge for knowledge's sake not just in science, in fact, but in general, across fields, is is worthwhile. Um, but first of all, you have to justify it when it comes in conflict with other values, mm-hmm. uh, right? So it's it's one thing um, if if your research costs rather little money, or if you're not in the sciences, you're in another discipline where you know there's better rather little money that that goes into this. But if we're talking about hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, that is a significant chunk of community resources Mm -hmm. and so you have to be able to make a case and that case uh, it's surprisingly undetailed when scientists actually are are forced to make that case i mean you know the the joke that i made that that i mentioned earlier by Stephen environment is very cute uh but it doesn't it's not an argument (laughs) obviously i mean Um, so well but you've you've probably heard the arguments many times that 
plenty of discoveries that turned out to be really practically useful, to have really practical benefits did not, I mean, they were just done for knowledge's sake, or they were done with some other end in mind, and the scientists at the time had no foresight as to what they would end up being useful for. That is like, that is you know, true. Mendel mucking around with uh, heritability had no right. idea that it would lead to medical genetics or genomics. That's correct. Um, but the, the thing that, that I always find interesting in that, um, in that argument is that it's surprisingly anecdotal. I mean, it's true yeah. that you can find plenty of anecdotes, sure. but for an argument like that to be done, to be made by a scientist who normally, who, who should know better than, than to rely on anecdotal evidence, like, and, and it seems like we should be able actually to do research on this. Yeah, it does, uh, right? actually. It, it, this is the kind of thing you can. I mean, you can, you can say, well, let's, let's take a look at, uh, you know, a certain number of projects funded by the National Science Foundation, you know, for the last uh, 30 years or 40 years or whatever it is. I mean, after all, we have records going back all the way to the 40s. And let's see how many of these pieces of primary research actually led anywhere. I'm, I'm sure it's not an easy piece of research to conduct, but it's like the data ought to be there. And so if since we're talking again about a large amount of resources, it seems like an anecdotal argument, as interesting as it is, and as undeniable as some of the anecdotes actually are, um, it's uh, it, it, it's really not particularly strong. The other thing is, um, they, we we need a controlled experiment. That is, okay. The the actual con- uh, comparison that we should be making is how much money do we give to say basic research through the National Science Foundation versus how much money do we give to say the NIH um, for applied research for directly applied research, and what is the return? that society gets in terms of applicable research, if that's what we're talking about, applicable scientific discoveries. I mean, I'm betting. I don't know. I don't have the data because I don't think that anybody's actually looked systematically at these things. But I'm betting that the return you get from NIH grants is much higher uh, in terms of applications than the return you get from NSF grants. Uh, Does that mean that we shouldn't fund NSF? Absolutely not. But it does mean that the anecdotal argument of, well, but the serendipitous discovery is going to happen uh, kind of loses a little bit of, of, of force. Um, and so perhaps that, that means that we should be reconsidering how, in fact, we spread out the money. Uh, so when I, when I, when I was in, uh, at, on uh, NSF panels, um, I noticed that NSF has a tendency to fund uh, more and more larger and larger research and give more and more money to smaller and smaller number of of laboratories. Mm, so what do you think that is? Well, it, the model is, again, the, the large research uh, projects that are sort of typical in physics, for instance. They want to apply that model to everything, um, including biology. Um, hmm. and, uh, and I always argued with NSF offices, that seems like, to me like exactly the wrong model for basic, re- basic research, because basic research is, in fact, a shotgun approach. Uh, the idea of basic research is that most of the time you don't know which way you're going to go. Um, we don't, you don't know which lab is going to be successful at doing what. And so what you want to do is you have a certain amount of resources. You want to actually spread them out as much as possible to give as many players as possible a chance to play. If you concentrate most of the money on a very small number of laboratories, uh, that, it seems to me, uh, first of all, biases the kind of research that is done only toward those, partic- those things that those laboratories do. And second, it actually reduces the the, the probabilities of success because this is by definition uh, basic research so it's not directed it's it doesn't we don't really have a particularly good idea of where we're going well so what the examples that i'm thinking of are from the social sciences but i feel like there might be a, a 
critical threshold below which uh, of um, funding below which your research project just isn't going to be high quality enough to find a useful result. So I'm thinking of a lot of studies that I read in the social sciences that would they would find some pattern in data or they would do some relatively basic or bare bones uh, lab simulation of some phenomenon they were interested in. And in their conclusion or discussion, they would acknowledge, well, you know, we really, you know, it would really actually be helpful to be able to control for X, Y, or Z, but, you know, we didn't have the, that, the data on that, or it would be helpful to sort of do a longitudinal study, but we didn't have the funding for that. And so these studies were, uh, in my opinion, not you know, more or less worthless. Whereas if we had taken the funding that funded, you know, 10 of those relatively worthless studies and funded one serious longitudinal study that collected the data, like spent the money to collect all the data that they would need to really get a handle on the phenomenon, that would be more useful to us than the 10 shoddy studies. Right. But you still need to make decisions about what is worth uh, funding and for what, for sure, what sure, reason, sure. right? Yeah. Um, and so, and again, that comes down to a matter of values. I mean, I, I met some of my colleagues who seem to think uh, that whatever it is that they're doing, you know, study the sexual habits of a rare species of butterflies or whatever it is that they're doing, they seem to think, you know, when you ask them, you say, why are you doing that? Uh, it, it, seem, it strikes them it's as... It's like almost it, self-evident. Right, it's self-evident. strikes them as a bizarre question. Like, well, what do you mean, you don't get it? And, well, no, I don't get it, actually. Sure, and, you sure. know, why would you be spending, you know, 30 years of someone's career or, you know, thousands of hours of, of work and uh, a lot of money uh, on that particular issue? And no, please don't tell me that it's likely that you're going to find a cure for cancer by, by studying the, the, that particular well, butterfly. That, because that's it's not the likely. other thing that a lot a lot of justifications for scientific research, and I don't know if these are things the scientists themselves believe or if this is what they say publicly so that they can justify the funding that they're getting, but a lot of the justifications seem like rationalizations. Like, they'll cite a particular goal or, or benefit that the science could lead to, but if that were really your goal, there would probably be much better or more efficient ways to pursue the goal than through the scientific project that's being defended. So, you know, the, the Genome Project, when scientists were testifying to Congress on behalf of the Genome Project, they cited the fact that, well, we can screen for terrible diseases that lead to short and painful lifespans and so this will you know improve the overall welfare of children because there will be fewer unhappy diseased um early dying children but so if if improving the welfare of children were your goal there's plenty of of cheap and straightforward things that we know with certainty we could do right right now uh, to improve the welfare of children. Right, which usually have to do with social and environmental yeah. impact more, more than with genomics. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. Um, so, you know, does that mean that the genome, Human Genome Project didn't, uh, uh, wasn't worth it? I don't know. Um, but it is worth asking the question, and I think it is uh, disingenuous sometimes of, of the scientists involved in sort of making these grandiose um, statements or, or treating the question as if it were self-evident. Now, I, I can tell you from experience that the, there is one section in every NSF grant that every scientist that I know absolutely hates, What's and that? that is the social justification section. Uh-huh. It's it's a, a little part, a little segment. It's a couple of paragraphs at the end of the grant proposal that you have to um, to um, fill out because otherwise the grant is going to be rejected out of hand, uh, you know, ex officio, as they say, and. Um, and everybody has exactly the same paragraph that we just copy and paste over and over. And it talks about, uh, you know, um, there is, there's going to be 
uh, training uh, undergraduates uh, of uh, minorities and women, which means it's going to have a human impact um, and this understanding of science, a public understanding of science, and a couple that of other things. That literally is completely gener- generic. That's entirely wow. generic. That's right. And nobody, of course, believes anything that is written in there, including probably NSF authors <laughs> themselves. But, you know, we got to go through the motions because, after all, NSF is funded by Congress and they, right, these people right. have to justify. Now, I, I'm sure there's plenty of other things to, to, to talk about that we might get or not in this podcast, but we should also make clear that the, the issue of values in society also goes the other way around. There, is, there, are, there are some, uh, plenty of philosophers have pointed out that there are also very positive values that come out of science and that affect society. So the value of you know, empirical investigation, the value of uh, rigorous testing of, of hypotheses, the, the, the value of uh, you know, objectivity as much as it can be reached, uh, achieved by, uh, in, a, in a human enterprise. The value of, and I'm going to use a, a dirty word here, communism. Actually, some, some uh, um, uh, philosophers have, have defined the scientific, uh, uh, described the scientific um, uh, enterprise as communist in nature, meaning that the results of scientific uh, investigation are supposed to be uh, you know, common knowledge. They're supposed to be accessible by anybody, public. It's public knowledge, right? Well, all those are values, again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's nothing that is intrinsic to the workings of science that uh, necessarily requires any of those, you know, any of those things um, and certainly doesn't require exporting those things to the rest of society. But uh, science in that case is a positive source of value, especially in a society where we live today where, where people just feel free to deny facts just because they don't fit their ideological agenda, then it seems like you know, the, the issue of value in science is too often brought up, what I guess what I'm saying, in terms of a criticism of science, which mm-hmm. I think is fair enough. Uh, but we also need to remember that the, the, the osmosis goes the other way around as well. Sure, sure. I, th- I just want to make sure we talk about, before we wrap up, the social consequences of some scientific research, research which uh, leads, I think, to some of the most difficult decisions about whether to pursue an avenue of research. So, um, for example, Cordelia Fine, who we were discussing earlier, we had her as a recent guest, uh, she was talking about how research on cognitive dis- differences between men and women, or the alleged cognitive differences between men and women, that not only is this a difficult claim to validate and that previous research on it has been questionable, but that there are consequences to publicizing these kinds of claims. Uh, they're really catchy, the popular media eats them up, and they get repeated, and they become part of the conventional wisdom that, quote, science shows that men are more adept at abstract reasoning and uh, so on and so forth. And that when people believe these claims, they actually behave differently. So women will do worse on math tests if they're told that men are better at math. Right. So so this seems to raise an argument that if we're going to do research with these kinds of potentially adverse consequences, then maybe there should be a really high standard of evidence before publicizing it. Right. Um, there, are, there are other fields of, of research that are um, intrinsically connected to values. Um, so, for instance, the, the example um, that, um, that comes to mind is conservation biology. I mean, mm-hmm. the very term conservation biology is value-laden because it means that you're studying things that you want to conserve. Mm-hmm. And, right? True. So you made a decision a priori before you even get started that there are certain things that are they're valuable to be conserved and that's why you're studying them. Now, that, that decision can be perfectly reasonable and perfectly defend, defensible on, on ethical grounds, but it is nonetheless a matter of, again, value, in this case, shaping an entire field of research. It's, mm-hmm. it's an entire branch of biology and you can see the results in it because uh, conservation biologists are uh, the quintessential example of a scientist who is constantly 
uh, involved with with public policy decisions and public policy issues, right? Just like, uh, of course, recently in recent years, climate scientists have been constantly involved. I mean, all these uh, these these brouhaha um, about uh, oh, should environmental scientists you know, uh, climate scientists being involved in policy, you know, advocacy and and policy advocacy and so on and so forth. Of course they should, uh, because they're the ones that know what's going on there, or at least they have the best idea about what is going on there. And it's really hard to, to say, well, now you have to separate your science from from your values, from your from your ethical, uh, you know, underpinning, as if that were actually possible. Um, yes, you can make, of course, you have to make a distinction between the facts, so to speak. And what you would like society to do with those facts, but even facts themselves are not value-free. Uh, one of the basic yes, ideas in, in early philosophy of science, even this, this goes back to uh, essentially Popper, or immediately after first, the first criticism of uh, Popper's ideas of, of falsificationism, was that there is no such thing as a, a fact. As a, as, a, as a data, as a piece of data. There's a bunch, there's an infinite number of facts in, out there in the universe. You can, you can partition reality in an infinite number of ways. The fact that you consider certain things data is because you have something in mind that, that you want to test. You uh, so he's not saying that there's no such thing as a true oh, no, no, piece no, of no. evidence about the world. He's just right. saying that but there's no always- such thing as like an objectively relevance exactly okay. exactly it's the relevance of the data yeah. that it's always with a theory in mind actually there's a famous quote by darwin um uh, who was writing to a friend and because darwin as it turns out was involved in a big debate about the nature of induction that was going on between john stuart mill and and uh and weevil uh two of the major philosophers mm-hmm. of the late 19th century and uh and darwin got involved in this debate and he, in frustration he wrote uh, to a friend of his saying something on the lines you know how how funny it is that people don't so many people don't seem to realize that there is no such a thing as a fact independent of a theory a fact is always in favor of or against a theory you pick something from the world and you consider it a fact you consider it a piece of data because you have something in mind because you have an idea in mind and so the, the, this is the idea that it's essentially impossible to extricate facts as objectively true things from values, including theories. Theories are values. Theories are, are human constructs. So they're a particular kind, uh, kind of value. That's not to say, as you, as you pointed out, that's certainly not to say that, well, therefore anything goes and you, people can pick up stuff as, as they, uh, from, the, from the world as they, as they like. No, that's not true because uh, facts and, and theories are interconnected in a web of knowledge, but that web of knowledge is not arbitrary. Nonetheless, it's a web. Uh, I wanted to make one other argument. I've been thinking a lot since reading Cordelia Fine's book and having her on the show about the consequences of scientific research and whether it's worth worth pursuing avenues that might have adverse consequences. And so that the racial differences in innate intelligence or alleged racial differences is sort of a notorious and controversial example of this. And... Setting aside the question of whether you could ever measure innate intelligence in an objective way, let's say that you could. Let's say that somehow you could show beyond a shadow of a doubt that race A had a mean IQ that was three points higher than race B. Well, I, my sense is that society doesn't really know how to, how to react to these claims in an epistemically reasonable way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so much variation in IQ within a, a given race that for any person of race A or race B, even if the difference in means is, is three IQ points, there's going to be 
only a very slight chance that the race A person would have the higher IQ than race, race B. It Correct. tells you almost nothing about the you know expected intelligence of race A person versus race B. But in my experience, people tend to overweight the importance of small differences between the means of two populations. So if they hear, oh, race A has a higher IQ on average than race B, then from then on, they tend to think that most race A people Correct. are more intelligent than most race B people, which would obviously have not just disastrous, but, but disastrous and unfounded, like unjustified Correct. consequences on That's society. Right. Which yeah, is- that, that is exactly the problem. That, that is, uh, once you make a scientific claim, even a true scientific claim uh, about a population, unfortunately, um, because of the abysmal uh, degree of scientific literacy that we have in society at large, or because of in- inherent cognitive biases in that, that human beings have no matter what, so there's a variety of reasons for that. But you're absolutely right, that people would in fact or dramatically probably overestimate uh, the, the difference when applied to individuals, which of course leads easily to discrimination and to all sorts of, of, of um, uh, societal problems that we really would rather stay away from. So I, I will wrap up this segment of uh, this episode of the podcast with a, a quote about scientists washing their hands of the consequences of their research. This is from a song by one of my all-time favorite songwriters, Tom Lehrer. It's a song about uh, Werner von Braun, who was a rocket scientist for Germany in the 20s and 30s and developed um, uh, some of their deadliest combat rockets. And then after the war, came to the U.S. to work for NASA and developed an intermediate-range ballistic missile for us. And so the the quote, it's an iconic quote from the song, is, um, Once the rockets go up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. (laughs) And with that, I will wrap up the section of the podcast and we'll move on to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, Julie and I pick a couple of our favorite books, movies, websites, or whatever tickles our rational fancy. Let's start, as usual, with Julia's pick. Thanks, Massimo. My pick is a classic book called What is History by E.H. Carr. And I thought it was particularly appropriate for this episode because in this episode, we were talking about how biases and unconscious value judgments can affect the practice of seemingly objective science. And this book is about how biases and value judgments can affect the practice of seemingly objective history. So there, there are a lot of ways that this can happen. One of the most basic is simply in deciding what counts as a, as a significant enough fact to be included in his, history, because obviously there's far, far too many facts about the past that, that you know, we would want to inc- then we would want to include in, in sort of a coherent narrative of what happened. Um, but there's there's another fun example of values affecting the explanation of histor- of history that I wanted to share with you. So <laughs> E.H. Carr is quoting Gibbon, who wrote um, the uh, the biggest history of the Roman Empire, Roman Empire. and its yep. decline. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Gibbon was observing that the Greeks, so after the, the Greek Empire had dwindled to a single province, the Greek uh, historians started attributing the Roman successes not to merit, but instead to luck, to, ah. to fortune. And that this is actually a, a principle, a phenomenon you see across cultures, across his- historians of different cultures in different ages. Um, so the, uh, the way that E.H. Carr describes this, this phenomenon is, quote, in a group or a nation which is riding in the trough, not on the crest of historical events, theories that stress the role of chance or accident in history will be found to prevail. <laughs> not by chance. Mm-hmm. 
Well, my pick um, is an article by Alison Gopnik in uh, Slate magazine. We'll, we'll post the, the link on the podcast website. The article is entitled, What John Turney Gets Wrong About Women Scientists. Now, John Turney is a well-known columnist for the New York Times. He writes these, the Turney Lab um, uh, column, which often is very interesting. But I have no, I've criticized him a couple of times. Recently, actually, in the blog, I, I wrote a couple of entries about his treatment of Jonathan Haidt's um, uh, research on the alleged liberal biases in academia and mm-hmm. why they exist and so on and so forth. And then immediately after that, Turney published this article about research showing, um, you know, uh, talking about women scientists and they're actually not discriminated as, as people might think and so on and so forth. And um, that article smelled um, the wrong way to me, uh, but I didn't have time to do the actual research to see what Turney actually got wrong. And fortunately, Alison Gopnik did. And it turns out that Turney has completely misread uh, the article. The article actually does suggest that there is very strong um, anti-women bias in, in science. It's just more complicated and more subtle and more difficult to, to, to figure out the causality of. Um, and that's what the study was actually getting into. Um, so, but but it, but the bias itself is absolutely um, uh, unquestionable. The the most uh, obvious evidence is are, are these controlled experiments, where um, social scientists send the same exact paper to reviewers. Uh, in one case, uh, putting the name of a, 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 a male name as the author, in the other case, a female name. Otherwise, the article is absolutely identical. And the chances of the paper being accepted if there is a male author are much, much higher than if it is a female author, which right there you'd, you'd think sort of should settle the question. But apparently, I... Turney didn't look into that sort of thing. So, uh, And yeah. then some of our readers actually pointed out to me that John Tierney has done this on a number of occasions. So he seems to have a fetish for um, you know, debunking alleged biases or, uh, uh, or, or for uh, bringing up biases that are apparently not there, depending on what the topic is, either if it's <laughs> women in science or, or, uh, or liberals in, in academia. So That's an amusingly weird and specific fetish, but I'm sure there's an interesting <laughs> group for it out there somewhere and if not uh john tierney can start a facebook page on it <laughs> okay on that note this uh, wraps up another episode of the rationally speaking podcast join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense the rationally speaking podcast is presented by new york city skeptics For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollack and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.